This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're exploring the genealogies of Genesis and why they're there in the first place, why they matter to us. Here again is Senior Pastor Michael Gallup. Today's a monumental day. Last page in the notebook. <laughs> Means I gotta, I get to get a new one. Did you find any books at the I did. It's a, they've, they've got a domestic domestic. I just need to go get it. So. <laughs> All right, we'll play a little game. So, I want you. I'm gonna ask a series of questions, and if you can answer, just raise your hand. And then if you can continue to answer, just keep your hands raised. So we're going to see, we're going to eliminate hands is kind of the idea. So if you can name, uh, if you know the name of your parents. All right. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> Steve, seems like, uh, uh, all, all your grandparents' names. Okay. Let's say at least two sets of uh, great-grandparents. Okay. Can you name any great-great-grandparents? Okay, we already all have our na- hands down. Really? No great-great-grandparents? Wow. I think, let me think. Uh, I know, so my great-grandmother was Grace. So Mary Grace, that's where part of her name comes from. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know their, her parents' names either, so I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, that's kind of wild, right? But it's a pretty common phenomenon. We, we're not so caught up in our ancestors. It's, it's kind of an American thing. We're not really people of family tradition. We may have family traditions, but usually they're not that old. Maybe they're just a few generations at most. Um, and so this is very unique and different. It's part of our kind of rugged individualisms as Americans. We're kind of unmoored from our past and those types of things. Yet throughout the world, uh, even to this day, and and often throughout history, who's, who's you belong to? What family, or, or even put in terms like the Bible uses, what tribe you belong to is of the utmost importance. Uh, and so when we come to passages like Genesis 5, which is a genealogy, it can be a little bit weird. Because we're like, what is the point of this? In fact, thinking of genealogies, I was hanging out with my mom this week. It was her birthday. I was visiting her in Mammoth. And we we're hanging out on the porch, and she started asking me questions about Bible and stuff, and uh, she's like, well, I just don't get this uh, such and such begat such and such, and such and such begat such and such, and she's like, I just, what's the point? And I was like, well, that's actually appropriate. I'm preaching on that this week, so my mom really teed up. I was teed up, ready to go and answer that question, but it, I think her sentiment is common. What's the deal with these things? I mean, is it just kind of a weird cultural relic? Is it just something that these Jews did, and it doesn't really matter? I mean, is this just kind of a break in the narrative that we need to skip over and get to the next point? Because, I mean, honestly, when people try to, to labor through reading the Bible in a year, they often bog down in those sections, particularly the beginning of Chronicles. I think it's the first 12 chapters of Chronicles are all genealogies. There's no narrative at all. It's just boom, 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 boom. And it's, it's exhausting. And uh, if you're devoted to a straight read-through, after a while, reading these names, you don't know who they are, or who's what and where, and who belongs to what. It can get pretty uh, defeating. So what is the purpose? Why do these genealogies exist? 
And uh, I would say, though, that they aren't just something to skip over. I think that they are core to the narrative. So we're in the middle of a series on Genesis. We're understanding and trying to understand this uh, story of creation to help us also to understand and participate in the reality of the new creation that we experience as um, resurrected people in Jesus Christ. Uh, to understand the new creation, understanding the old creation is paramount. And part of our journey through our study of Genesis is reading it as a text, reading it as a cohesive narrative, not little bits and pieces, not coming to it to proof text some questions that we have that are birthed out of our modern environments, but to ask the question, what did the authors, what did the writers, what did the original audience have in mind? What is the story here? Then maybe we can begin to ask, what does that mean for me? And what is that, how does that apply to our world? But first we have to ask that question is, what is the original story? As I said, who you belong to. The story of family is quintessentially important to the Jewish people. And, and this is core to this narrative. It is a core narrative device. In fact, this isn't our first genealogy in the Bible. You guys remember beginning of chapter 2, the introduction of what is going to happen in the, the creation, of God's good creation. It says, these are the genealogies of the heavens and the earth when they are created. Which is kind of a beautiful sentiment. The, the author, one, is, is initiating to us that genealogies are important. As we understand origins, as we understand who we are, we are tied to the maker of heaven and earth. That we are not this kind of separate thing, that our story isn't out on its own, but that our story of who we belong to, uh, who we are, is tied to God himself. In fact, I think it becomes pretty clear when you read the beginning of chapter 5. It says, this is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them humankind when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. We see that the genealogy of Adam doesn't start with Adam. It starts with God. He created Adam in his likeness and image, and he named him. This is actually the first place where we see that God named Adam. We assumed it, but a God who names things all throughout Genesis 1 gives the task of naming to Adam in Genesis 2. We see here that there's a God who named Adam like a father does a son. And any uh, doubt that maybe there's this connection, we see Adam doing the same exact thing, having a son in his image and likeness and naming him. As we begin to see that these aren't just stories about who is whose father. But they hold deep theological truths for who we are and the reality of this world, that we see that our common ancestor is God. Here we are introduced to the idea, the fundamental idea of the nature and character of who God is, and that He is Father. He is the Father of all. That's awesome. Another thing that's coming up, and we take into the fullness of the narrative that we have, is we're seeing a glimpse of hope, right? We get to Genesis 3, there's the fall and the pronouncement of cursing. But we also see the pronouncement of hope for restoration, that there would be a seed that would come, an offspring, a son, born to Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so when we come to Genesis 5, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3, we see that reiteration of the story from Genesis 1, of the image and likeness, that, it, that isn't totally lost, despite the deterioration that we see in Cain and his descendants, 
we see that it's not gone, that it's still there, that it's still being passed down by, through blessing, through likeness, through naming, that the image is still there, that the hope of a son, a seed that will come, an offspring, is still with us, that the promise still stands. And so we begin to see in those first few verses that uh, a new creation, a new Adam, is our great hope. Another narrative piece that we see here is a contrast. We're given a genealogy uh, immediately prior to this one in chapter 4. After the story of Cain killing his brother Abel, he is exiled and he builds a city. And we see his line up to the seventh generation, seven being a number of completion, obviously, from the days of creation. And we see in Lamech the total deterioration, the breakdown of the image. Instead of being the brother's keeper, he invokes divine justice and retribution on any who would harm him. He finds himself uh, boastfully bragging about his position, owning um, his violence as a child killer. And so when we come to the genealogy in chapter 5, we're immediately given this juxtaposition. The image and likeness is there. We see similar names. In fact, Enoch is the first son of uh, Cain, and Enoch is the seventh son of Adam. Lamech is the end of the great genealogy of Cain that ends in this boastful declaration, and Lamech is the end of the genealogy in chapter 5, the father of Noah, who speaks words of lament but hope, not boast, but grace. But, but all of this is just context. It's all background. It's all, this is what the narrative is doing. This is what the narrative is setting up for us. But so what? What is this text trying to tell us? And again, I think that the narrative structure is key here. Just like in Genesis 1, and as we see throughout the Hebrew literature, this, this idea of parallelism, parallelism, it's a hard word to say, parallelism, and repetition is core to Jewish literature. Uh, you could see it in the way that the, the edited scripture that we read this morning, I pulled out the last line, and you see the same uh, formula used day in, uh, for each generation. Um, you see that a person lived for a certain amount of years, they father a son, they name the son, then they die, and then the son takes over. And it's, it's almost verbatim. You could just you could take out names and put in other names and year them out and put them in their year them out and nothing changes until you get to Enoch. Again, the seventh son, the seventh generation. So you've read uh, multiple stories and it, and it ends with a unique piece. Adam lived 930 years and then he died. That's a unique narrative uh, tool that our author in Genesis is using here. One that's not used in all the other genealogies that will fall in the Old Testament. And then he died. And I think at the heart of what the author is trying to tell us is that despite the hope, despite the desire for promise, with each son, I think that there's a sense of, will this be the one? Will this be the promised seed that will crush the serpent's head? And with each one, again and again, we're reminded of the tragic truth of the cosmic fall. He died. He died. He died. He died. He died. And then he died. After six generations of death, we come to Enoch, and all of a sudden our narrative structure is completely unhinged. It falls apart. 
This reminds me of one of my favorite books, and I'm sure I've shared this with you guys before because I love it, but it's a book called Things Fall Apart. It's by um, a Nigerian national who lived in, grew up in uh, London named Chino, uh, Chino, oh God, Achieve, sorry, Achieve. And his father was from Nigeria and lived during the time of colonialization and become a Christian minister, actually. And he uh, had this really interesting perspective on the world of Africa. Most of what was being written was been written from the colonizer's perspective. Like maybe you guys have heard of The Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. It's one of the most famous texts ever written. But Joseph Conrad has a very bleak and demeaning uh, depiction of the native people of Africa. That the terminology savages really begins and gets its uh, cultural weight from the heart of darkness. He referred to the people of Africa as savages. The heart of darkness is Africa. He sees this place in need of enlightenment, in need of hope, in need of the good that the colonizers would bring. And so Achibe set out to write a different story from the perspective of the native Africans and what the experience of colonization was like for them. And he spends about two-thirds of the text telling us the story from the perspective of the Ibu people. And it's really fascinating. It's kind of a jarring text to begin to read because it tells the story in the same sort of narrative structures of the Ibu people, which were oral. And so like our Bible, like the Hebrews, lots of repetition. But more than that, they also had a meter. It was almost like a song, that there was a certain amount of syllables in each sentence. And it was fascinating the way he was able to do that from another language into the English language. And as you're doing this, you're several hundred pages in, this rhythm just becomes a part of who you are as you're reading it. The, the meter, the rhythm, the repetition, and it's, it's paced beautifully, and it's a wonderful story. And then the colonizers show up, and all of a sudden the narrative completely falls apart. And it goes from these short, terse sentences of repetition to these long, flowing, long, you know, running sentences, run-on sentences, uh, no repetition. And that's part of our English language um, is that if you're going to use one word, then you need to use a synonym the next time you use it. You don't want to repeat yourself. That's bad form. And as you're reading it, you, you may not immediately pick up on it, but you're disrupted. Like your rhythms are thrown off. You, you feel like something is wrong. It was brilliant storytelling. And I think we see that on display here in Genesis 5. We've been kind of lulled into a rhythm and a pattern of understanding that this is this person, this is what they did, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And then we get to Enoch, and we begin to read that he lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. This is the seventh. This is the completion. This is the hope. And all of a sudden, the, just, the narrative blows up. And Enoch doesn't die. I mean, that was the curse. Surely you will die. And Enoch doesn't. We're brought to this grinding halt, and our attention is brought to a heightened place. And we say, Why? What happened with Enoch? The narrative gives us one small detail to answer that question. He walked with God. So, Enoch walks. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say where. It doesn't say to what purpose. He just walked. Well, he walked with God. 
You know, walking may seem like kind of like a weird reason to disrupt this narrative. Walking may seem like a really weird reason that Enoch would transcend the effects of the curse, that he would be exempt from the, cur- the end of death. Unless, as we've done, we hold the whole narrative in view. This isn't the first time we've seen God walk, right? You guys remember the last time we see God walk in our story in Genesis? In the garden. Right after Adam and Eve partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their nakedness is exposed to them. They feel shame and they hide. And it says in the cool of the morning, God comes in the garden walking. Adam and Eve stand him up. Where are you? He's come to walk with them. What I think is fascinating about this story is God's desire for Adam and Eve in that moment is to walk with them, to be with them. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I walk, I don't really have a ton of purpose. Uh, Usually when I walk, it's with people. It's with my family, with my dog. Maybe we're walking so the dog can get some relief. But above all, we're doing it just to be with these people we love. I think a good walk is less about where you're going but about who you're going with. And we see that in the nature of God, showing up in Genesis 3, ready and desiring to walk with Adam. Regardless of Adam's condition, regardless of his shame, regardless of his hiding, regardless of his sin, God still shows up wanting to walk. And so we see Enoch doing the very thing Adam didn't, walking with God. Remember, this is our hope. And this is the hope that's beginning to give more definition as we read through this Genesis passage. That the seed that will come, that will crush the head of the serpent, won't just be a descendant of Adam, but will be a new Adam. That will fulfill this call and this cultural mandate that Adam was given to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To seek thriving of creation with God in participation. And Enoch begins to hint at this new Adam a new humanity will fill our role of being made in the image and likeness of God. But I think there's more. I think there's more to this idea of walking. Uh, for the Jewish people, this becomes a major metaphor. And we read the Micah passage. It's one of the most famous and most quoted passages that the requirement of the Lord is to live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And the idea behind this walk was that this was a metaphor for living your life. To say walking was synonymous with saying living. Because if you think about the Jewish people, I mean, this is centuries, millennia ago, long before the invention of uh, modern transportation, even before a lot of the domestication of animals. If you wanted to go anywhere, you walked. Walking was living. You walked when you worked. You walked when you with family, you walked to eat, you walked, I mean, it just walk, walk, walk. And so to say that Enoch walked with God is true, but I also think it hints at something more that Enoch lived with God. He experienced the presence of God in all of his life, in his comings and his goings, and his waking up and his laying down, and his messes and his goodness, and the birth of his family, and the sorrows that he felt. He was with God. As we begin to read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that that becomes this core idea, that the fulfillment of this promised son comes to fruition with the promise that God makes to us, to his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
God with us. And yet I think this passage and this idea gets used in some odd ways. I don't know, when I went to a, a, a Bible college, basically, with a couple of you guys, and uh, the question I got asked a lot, and I don't know if y'all ever got asked this question, was, how's your walk? Did you ever get asked that question? Yeah. How's your walk? I always do it in the Southern accent. How's your walk with the Lord? And it's kind of like, what was going on in that question? I, which, what I heard there was, are you good enough? Have you done your quiet time this morning? Have you prayed enough? Are you going to church enough? Are you witnessing enough? Are you knocking on doors? Are you staying out of sin? Are you staying out of places where it caused you to sin? Are you not watching bad movies? I mean, it was like this whole list of things, and the question was, how's your walk? Was are you enough? And I don't care what I had done. I don't care how much godly disciplines I had installed in my life and it shaped me, I always felt shame. I felt like Adam and Eve in the garden. I wanted to hide. I wasn't enough. How's your walk? Not so good. Not so good. Yet I would argue that that question totally misses the point of what we're given here. See, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. It wasn't that Enoch woke up every morning and read a devotional. See, God isn't just something to be studied. He's not a thing. We wake up and spend 30 minutes every morning so that we can check a box on our to-do list or feel better about ourselves. No, He's a lover. He's a lover, a person who feels every hurt, who weeps every tear, laughs every guffaw, and knows every sorrow. My grandmother, thinking of genealogies, her name was Mary, the other half of Mary Grace's name. Every Sunday in her little uh, church in Grand Gulf, Missouri, it's called Shiloh Church. This little independent church of about 15 people. She got up and sang a song. And she had two songs. One was a good shaming song, Have You Been a Friend of Jesus? <laughs> it was that question, How are you doing? Yeah. But her other one, I think, was, because no one's perfect, I don't want to, She's a saint in my eyes, but, you know, there's the reality. But her other song that she sang, the one that brought me to tears every time, was In the Garden. And the chorus of that goes, And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. And I heard there something beautiful. And I heard hints of the gospel, and I heard hints of a relationship, and I heard hints of a goodness of God that I had not heard in the accusations of how's your walk. I heard of a God who desired to walk with me. Who didn't demand that I walk better so that he would show up. That even when I was hiding in my nakedness and my shame, he showed up and said, where are you? He was ready to walk. Ready to talk. Ready to proclaim to me that I am his. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that godly disciplines are bad. I mean, I'm in a marriage. It's a relationship. She's a my lover, right? When that, all the things I said there. But we go on dates. We set schedules. We live our lives in an ordered way because it's important. We'd have an awful marriage if we didn't do these types of things. Yet if all of our life was simply going on a date and no walking together, no living together, no crying or laughing together, then our dates are just mockeries. 
but perhaps you don't know how to walk. Or at least not how to walk like this. Don't worry. You're in good company. In the Gospel of John, one of the disciples, Thomas, comes up to Jesus on the night that he's betrayed and says, I don't know how to do this. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. I don't know the way. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't give him a prescription of spiritual disciplines. He doesn't tell him to study or to do these things and check off boxes. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. How do we know the way? Proverbs 3 says, Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and He will make your paths straight. Acknowledge. This isn't some kind of grand thing. It's simply paying attention. We've We talk about this in our value of wonder, that we open our eyes, that we look, and that when we feel something, no matter what it is, it literally doesn't matter, whatever you feel, to think of Him. When you hurt your toe, acknowledge Jesus. When you get a raise, acknowledge Jesus. When you're driving on the road, acknowledge Jesus. As we begin to do this, we become rehearsed in this reality that He is present with us. And sometimes it doesn't feel real. I mean, if you were to set a timer on your phone every 15 minutes and think, okay, Jesus, you're here with me, and to say that kind of prayer, it may feel trite, it may feel forced, it may feel unreal, but it doesn't change the reality of life, the reality of the fact that He is present. Jesus tells His disciples as He ascends to heaven, I'm with you always to the ends of the earth. This is His last words for us, His people. I am with you always. He leaves, but He gives us a spirit, a promise that He is ours. But I still find it hard. It's easy for me to say these things, right? And do this, do that. <laughs> but I still find it hard. In fact, this morning, I'm reviewing my notes and getting ready for church, and I'm just so distracted. I'm distracted by life, bills, and by all kinds of stuff. You know, I've really resonated with Jesus's uh, parable where he says the seed that's thrown in the ground and it's choked out by the worries of this age. And I'm like, oh man, I get that. I get that. Yet even there, even in those places where it feels impossible to even acknowledge the presence of God, where I'm so distracted, so choked out, and in the darkness, even there, I'm not alone. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Even if we hide, whether we do it intentionally, we find ourselves there on accident, we find ourselves in the place of shame of what we have done or what we have left undone, I believe God will move all creation to walk with us. That He shows up to the place of our hiding and our shame, and He says, where are you? It's calling us out of hiding and into relationship. How do I know this? There are only two genealogies in the New Testament. You know, this is the story. We're, we're looking for the promised seed. We spend 12 chapters, right, in the book of Chronicles doing genealogy. I think there's six more in the book of Genesis alone. There's only two in the New Testament. And they both at the very beginning. It's the very first part of the book of Matthew, the story of Jesus, and the very beginning of the book of Luke, the story of Jesus. 
and both end with Jesus. He's the new Adam. He's the new humanity. And what's fascinating is that He is God as well. That we see in Jesus a person who walks with us. In fact, Jesus is the person who walks the most. There's almost 200 uh, uh, references to Jesus walking. And He walks with us. And He walks with us throughout all of the experiences of our lives. But unlike Enoch, this Adam dies. He walks with us into the void. He walks with us into God-forsakenness. He walks until he can no longer walk himself. So in those places where you find it hard, where God feels distant, where God maybe feels like he hates you, you have no idea which way is up, we can look to Jesus to know that there is God with you. He knows what that walk is like. And this is what he does in the resurrection. Gospel of Luke tells us that he comes upon two men, two disciples, who are walking down the road to a town called Emmaus. And he walks with them the entire way and he tells them all about the Old Testament and how it was leading up to Jesus. And they don't recognize him. They have no idea who it is. And yet he walks with them. And they come to the table and he breaks bread and their eyes are opened. But unlike Adam and Eve, whose eyes were open to shame, these two disciples' eyes were open to the grace and love of God. We got a new Adam, a new humanity, who's fulfilled the promise, who has shown us love, and who has welcomed us into the presence of God, who walks with us in the good and the bad, who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. There's nowhere we can go. Oh, even if my soul ascends to Sheol, there you are. How's your walk? Well, I don't know. I don't know how your walk is. I don't really know how my walk is. But I know how good his walk is. I know he walks with me. I know he'll move all creation to continue to walk with me. And by God, maybe just maybe our eyes will open to His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this story uh, that we so quickly pass over, this story of who begat who. You know, it's a story about life and birth and death, about names, about who we will be, what we're made of. And it's a story that shows us that at our core, despite the effects of death, the fight that everyone may be falling around us in the darkness and despair, and that even in our own hearts we feel that. You were there, calling us out of hiding and calling us into love. God, give us the grace to open our eyes this week and acknowledge you, to see you in the good and the bad and the light and the dark on all of our ways to acknowledge you so that you may make our paths straight. For you are the way. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. 
You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you.